the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. We are back in the witchy world after the Mandela Effect episode. We're switching back to our Halloween-related content with a double bill. We're first going to deal with 1993's Hocus Pocus and then going to move on to 2022's Hocus Pocus 2. Cue the spooky music. Before we start on the discussion, we will give more thanks to Mitch Bain for our spooky Halloween theme. And this leads us nicely into the first of our double bill, which is 1993's Hocus Pocus, directed by Kenny Ortega and starring, amongst others, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker and Kathy Najimy. I think this movie just kind of introduces itself. So I'm going to give a very brief synopsis, which is the generic synopsis included on IMDb. A curious youngster moves to Salem, where he struggles to fit in before awakening a trio of diabolical witches that were executed in the 17th century. So Hocus Pocus was released in the July of 1993, I believed, as it wanted to catch the kids on uh, summer break and not compete with A Nightmare Before Christmas, which was being released that very Halloween. So Disney didn't want to compete with itself, essentially, which meant the film didn't actually do too well upon its initial release. And it's one that has grown a massive cult following over the years. It is like the quintessential Halloween movie now. You can't have Halloween without watching Hocus Pocus. It's like you can't have Christmas without Die Hard. So I think that's a testament to how much in popularity this film has grown. And it is one of my favourite films featuring witches, one of my favourite live-action Disney films, one of my favourite Halloween films. I have nothing negative to say about this film because it's just a joy to watch every single year. The performances, like I think we need to start there. The casting is absolutely impeccable and I think that all three main actresses have such a commanding presence. They're all unique to themselves. And I think that's what really makes it. And they all bounce off each other really well. And even though they are these 
diabolical witches, as it said in the synopsis. They're a lot of fun as well, and they're so much fun to watch. So it balances the scary and the comedy brilliantly. I think the fun comes out of the fact that they're evil, but it's kind of comedic evil as well. So there's nothing too disturbing. It's very much family viewing. And they do make a good triple act. They do, as you say, have very specific personalities which complement each other. So you've got Bette Midler, who is the very forceful Winifred. You've got Sarah Jessica Parker, who is the slightly naive and quite slow-witted Sarah. And then you've got Kathy Najimy, who is this very bizarre presence, who has all manner of weird facial tics and weird asides. One thing we do have to get out of the way now well, one thing I do have to get out of the way now, and we have discussed this before we started recording this, is that Sarah Jessica Parker, in addition to being a really good comedian in this, I've watched this again recently, and she's absolutely gorgeous in this movie. I just couldn't take my eyes off her. I don't think I'd managed to spot this on previous viewings, but just recently... I don't know, it's some kind of spell maybe. Maybe the movie's done its own bit of witchiness on me. But I just sat there thinking, bloody hell, she's just gorgeous in this movie. Thank you for expressing that, Darren. I'm sure our listeners have needed to know that. <laughs> <laughs> They're all fantastic. And talking of Sarah Jessica Parker, I love the song that she sings, the Come Little Children song. It's iconic. It's just the perfect ethereal creepiness that it brings to the movie. It's great. With the good guys, I guess, in the cast, the main teenagers, they are typically very 90s. Like, this movie is a film that will just transport you back to the 90s. It just evokes everything that was cool and popular and very trophy of the 90s films. I think the main characters are really well-developed, but particularly I think that Thora Birch is great in this. She was only a child actress when she plays the role of Danny, but she is one of the highlights of this film. And obviously we're going to be talking about the sequel, but this is a very tough act to follow. And I think that the younger characters in the first one are miles better than the young characters in the new movie. I just think that Thora Birch brings so much personality to the role. It's quite similar to how Drew Barrymore was in E.T. as well. I think she's kind of got that vibe about her. Yeah, that's true. I think Thora Birch does bring something a little extra to the table here. And the other teen leads, we've got Omri Katz, who was in an absolutely brilliant show, which was cruelly cancelled, called Eerie Indiana. If you haven't seen Eerie Indiana, it's so good. It's just a brilliant TV kids horror show. And it's fantastic and didn't deserve the fate that it got. It only ran for one season, and it was such a good show. But Omri Katz is here, so he's got horror pedigree. Vanessa Shaw is the other teenage lead. She went on to appear in, amongst other things, the Hills Have Eyes remake. You've got Mick Garris on board as one of the co-writers. You've got Doug Jones. I mean, Doug Jones is synonymous with all sorts of fantasy horror stuff. He plays a good zombie in this. And, more obscure... Casting director Mary Gale Arts does appear in 1981's absolutely fucking dreadful Don't Go in the Woods. 
Now, I can't remember if I've seen that or not, because I have seen some dreadful don't-go-into-somewhere films, but... No, I think I started watching that, I tell a lie, and it was so shit I turned it off. So I've never completed that film because I sat there thinking, what was going on? Anyway, back to Focus Focus. <laughs> Everything about this film, aesthetically, it just screams Halloween. And it just is one of those films that it just has to be watched at Halloween. And I think it's such a shame that Disney made that decision to release it in the summer. It just doesn't feel right to me. And it's a shame that it didn't do well on its initial release. I came to this film in my childhood. I can't pinpoint exactly how old I was, but I remember watching it on TV, possibly on one of the Disney Channel showings. And instantaneously, I loved this film. And I think as I grew up into being a big horror fan, this probably played a part in my interest in really dark movies. I never felt like scared by this. And I think that it's because it's so playful. And I guess I was probably drawn to the, the darker elements in this film. And speaking of it being dark in certain places, originally Disney wanted to make this film darker than it ended up being. Its original title was going to be Disney's Halloween House. And it was written in 1984 and Disney bought the script then and they held on to it for nine years before actually producing something out of it. I'm kind of interested to see how they would have made it scarier, but I think it's fine as it is because it is a perfect kids horror. I think it's like not too scary, but it's scary enough. And, you know, it has, I suppose there's like the creepy bits, like with the zombie Billy Butcherson. I think that would probably freak a few sensitive viewers out. Otherwise, it's just a really great, fun adventure Halloween movie. Guarantees to put a spell on you. Have to go there. It's got to <laughs> be a fun in this episode. Yeah, I think because you've got somebody like Mick Garris on board, Mick Garris has got a really good handle on horror. So it's a good gateway into slightly more darker territory. Having said that, some of the plot is quite dark because it is about three witches who basically eat children. So there is some darkness there. It's done in a very playful way and it's all very light-hearted. And as you say, the scares, they're not huge ones. The chills more than anything else. There are slightly more disturbing elements. You've got the zombie with his mouth sewn up which is on the face of it quite disturbing. But even that is played for some sort of laugh. So it's a movie that you can probably show to most people and I don't think they'll get too disturbed by it. But even so, I think horror fans of all ages will get something out of this because there are nods to darker things going on there, even if it doesn't go there specifically. And there are good gags like uh, when... Omri Katz's character sets off the sprinklers and then he describes it as the burning rain of death and the witches are trying to escape the sprinklers thinking that it's going to destroy them. So it's got an eye on slightly more warped humour but it's a Disney movie at the end of the day and it's a Disney movie from the 90s so that darkness is massively offset by the sense of humour in it. And it is a bit of a shame that it didn't go up against Nightmare Before Christmas, but that was a pretty big juggernaut of a movie and swept pretty much everything in its path. And it is a great movie. The unfortunate thing for this movie is it went up against Free Willy, which pretty much killed its box office. Now, I've seen this and I've seen Free Willy, and maybe it's my horror fan side coming out, 
but Free Willy is asinine, sentimental tosh. And this is really good. Interestingly, I remember Free Willy being a huge movie in the 90s, but nobody mentions it anymore. I've not heard about that film for years. Um, I know I watched it, but I can't tell you anything apart from just the whale jumping out of the sea and just the, the boy. He's like jumping over the boy. That's all I can really tell you about it. But yeah, Hocus Pocus has definitely surpassed that popularity that Free Willy had back in the 90s. I think if this film had been made in the 80s, Disney were planning to go extra dark and probably have it in a similar vein to Return to Oz, which would have been interesting, but I have no qualms about this film at all. I just love it just the way it is. There's nothing I'd really change. I think it, it flows really well. It's got a good pacing. It doesn't feel like a slog at any point. It just gets on with the plot, which is good because I think films now tend to be a lot longer in runtime and they just pad them out too much with unnecessary stuff. But this one, one hour, 36 minutes, I think it's just ideal, and it will you know, keep the kids' attention. Yeah, it doesn't outstay its welcome. There is a weird bit where the plot grinds to a halt so that Bette Midler can do a musical number. But if you've got Bette Midler, are you really going to just keep her in the background for a lot of the movie and not let her give vent to her talent. So maybe at some point they thought, you know what, we've got to chuck a number in that Bette Midler can do. And it is quite fun. Even though it doesn't advance the plot one little bit, it's kind of woven into what they're doing. But it's fairly creakily done. But it's the sort of thing you don't mind because it's quite a fun musical number and it's not that long. And then the plot gets straight on with itself afterwards. I think they decided that the main talent should get a chance to shine for two or three minutes so i'm not gonna tear strips off this movie just for the fact that the plot slows down well the plot pretty much stops for three minutes but hey it only stops for three minutes and then it just carries straight on i think that's one of the movie's best scenes because it's just so out there you don't expect it to happen well you do now because everyone's (laughs) like watched this film like 30 million times but at the time, it was just a very surprising moment. And I think it's obviously that song I put a spell on you has become synonymous with Hocus Pocus now. I was fortunate enough to uh, be in Disney World during Halloween about four years ago. And I got to see the Hocus Pocus Nighttime Spectacular. I can't remember the, the name of it exactly, but the actors they had playing the three main witches impersonated them so well. It was like, you know, seeing the real thing. And then they mixed with the other Disney villains, which was really, really great to see. You had Oogie Boogie and Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog. Absolutely brilliant. And I think, again, just this movie is just Halloween. Yeah, it is. And I think it's become more enduring over the years. The fact that it didn't really make much of a splash on its original release, but then had a second life on video and blu-ray and now streaming so i think that the quality of it eventually won out yeah it's not going to be the best halloween movie you've ever seen but it's got something about it it's fun it doesn't take itself too seriously at all and even the slightly scarier bits it's still nudging you and kind of saying well you know this is this is a bit silly though isn't it and it is really and it's the sort of thing that you can sit down and watch pretty much any time of year, specifically Halloween, but it's just got a really pleasant air to it, even though the overarching plot is quite dark, 
but they make a good joke out of stealing kids' souls. And even the darker points of the plot when it goes back to Salem in the 1690s, even that is dealt with a fairly light touch. Uh, You've also got NCIS star Sean Murray in the opening credits and as a cat, Thackeray Binks. So if ever you see NCIS and there's a guy called McGee, I was just thinking like, I know that guy from somewhere. And it's like, oh, it's the guy out of NCIS. Of course it is. (laughs) And talking of cats, oh my God, I just love this movie because it features a black cat. I am a very proud owner of a black cat myself. And I just think the cat is just one of the best parts of it. I'm going to give a fact about the cat because I can't talk about Hocus Pocus and not do this. So due to the length of the film and the variety of tricks Binks performs, several cats were used on the Hocus Pocus set. Humane Hollywood reported that the crew chose which cat to feature in each scene based on the animal skills and personality. Still, the animal stunts required training and creativity. According to Humane Hollywood, when the children first meet Binks at the witch's house, Binks surprises Max by jumping on him and Max falls down. To achieve this scene, one trainer released the cat, while a second trainer called the cat by a way of buzzer hidden in the actor's clothing. For some scenes, animatronics were used in place of a real cat, and the rumour has it that the animatronic cat went on to play Salem in the Sabrina the Teenage Witch TV series. I don't know how true that is, but I've heard it's a bit of a rumour. It looks very similar, and when I was watching it this time, I was struck by how similar it was. To Salem in Sabrina the Teenage Witch so that rumour might actually be true. Big up to them for using live cats on set because I mean I have got two cats none of which are black they're both ginger and they do not behave so for them to actually be able to train the cat to actually do anything other than the exact opposite of what you tell it then big up to the people who managed to do that. There is a kind of a classic scare where the cat kind of jumps out on somebody. It's done fairly early on and it's not a big jump scare, but you've got to have that, I guess. Any horror-related movie where you've got a cat, the cat has to appear when you're least expecting it at least once in the plot. And if it's a Lucio Fulci movie, probably about 18 times before (laughs) the end of the movie. It's got all these touchstones of horror. It's got witches, it's got a black cat, it's got a Halloween setting... It's got the devil in it at one point. Well, when I say the devil, it's some guy's house and he's dressed as a devil, but the witches are taken in by the fact that he might actually be Satan. So they go into his house and then are quite disappointed when they find out that he is not, in fact, the Prince of Darkness. That's a really funny scene. Yeah, that's another really great scene in the movie. It just makes me laugh every time. I love it. It's just a joy to watch because of the misunderstanding between the guy dresses the devil and his wife, who are just regular people, and these um, ancient witches that have returned from the dead who seem to be worshipping him. It's like it's a, it's a very cleverly crafted scene. And talking of Bette Midler, she says she, her performance as Winifred was inspired by the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz and the Grand High Witch in uh, The Witches, two of my favourite witches of all time, and then obviously she's combined them into one. So that's pretty cool that she took influence from those other movies to that for part of Winifred because Winifred she's just great I just love her yeah I think the thing about Winifred is even though she's a fairly nasty piece of work at the end you don't really want her to win 
but you don't also don't want anything really bad to happen to her either it's that weird sort of flip between a character that really is up to no good but at the same time she's so much fun you think well I don't really want her to die either at the end yeah, I know what you mean. But I, I think the comeuppance for the witches is satisfactory at the end. I think I, I love the way it ends. I think they do a good job with it. As I say, I just have nothing negative to say because I just like how this film pans out. Yeah, same here. I think it's aged extremely well. I think it's a very neatly done, quite funny, quite sweet Halloween story with uh, the unexpectedly gorgeous Sarah Jessica Parker, which came out of absolutely nowhere. I'm just sitting here now fanning myself. I'm overcome with with Sarah Jessica's astonishing beauty of this movie. However, Sarah Jessica Parker wasn't the only option for the part of Sarah. As always, we like to talk about what could have been casting on this podcast. And allegedly, Jennifer Lopez auditioned for the role of Sarah, which would have been interesting. Also, the actor they approached to play Max was Leonardo DiCaprio, but he um, declined the role to star in what, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which he is incredible in. And I think from a young age, he basically showed his range of talent in that film. But again, I think Leonardo DiCaprio would have been great in Hocus Pocus. I can imagine him in that part as like a very young Leonardo DiCaprio. So, But I'm happy with all the casting that was in the film. I, I mean, I wouldn't really change anybody. Yeah, so here, J-Lo is an interesting choice for Sarah because I don't know if I can see J-Lo as somebody who's a little bit deferential and a little bit, I think, well, I wouldn't describe Sarah as this, but I've seen her character described as airheaded, which I think is a little bit cruel. I think she's of a certain type and she's very flighty and a little bit lusty. And I think she gets carried away quite easily. I don't think she's airheaded. And I think she plays on the fact that she's almost a complete opposite to Winifred. Winifred is very driven and calculating, whereas Sarah has her head up in the clouds. And I'm not sure that J-Lo has that kind of air about her. I think J-Lo seems to be a more grounded and decisive sort of person. But you never know. She might have been able to pull the role of Sarah off. DiCaprio clearly would have been good in the lead role, but Omri Katz is great as well. Omri Katz no longer acting, but the few roles he did take, he was great in, in every single one of them. And this one, he does convince as a slightly awkward teenager trying to get into the good books of the... Well, I mean, if Vanessa Shaw was at your high school, every single guy would be falling over her. They've kind of made her this like almost unattainable figure of high school girlhood she's saw in very flattering light as well so it's kind of every high school boy's dream does he end up getting the girl we'll not tell you that one <laughs> the other and um, what could have been casting i will mention is rosie o'donnell was first choice for mary samson but she turned down the part because she didn't want to play a scary witch yeah oh, fair enough uh yeah rosie o'donnell would have been good in that i think it's the sort of role that I can see her playing. Having said that, Katina Jimmy is really great in it. She is a complete riot and very unpredictable. Like you say, the the three witches, it's perfect casting. You watch Hocus Pocus, and although you can kind of envision other people in the roles, at the end of the day, 
there's probably not going to be a better combination than the three that they got. I'm 100% in agreement with you there. And I think what's great with Hocus Pocus, yes, it's a Disney movie. Disney movies are aimed at families, but there's so much humour in this that will go over the kids' heads and give the grown-ups a chuckle. Because I think until I rewatched it as an adult, I totally forgotten the whole mention of virgins. Um, so God knows what I must have thought of that when I was like six. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a lot of like sort of risque innuendos in there, um, and I think it does push the boundaries for traditional Disney, which is quite fun. But again, there's nothing offensive in it whatsoever. But it's it's just one of those that I think it has an appeal for the whole family, and no matter what age you are, there's something to enjoy in this film. Sarah Jessica Parker, as far as Darren's concerned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to take me a while to get over Sarah Jessica Parker in this movie. It was. Uh... It's the sort of thing that, yeah, I'm, I may have to go and have a lie down after this podcast. It's uh, it's affected me in ways that I didn't expect. After the Mandela effect, I was kind of looking for something else that was a bit lighter. And then I got blindsided by the fact that Sarah Jessica Parker is this like luminous object of desire in it. I, I apologise for the gushing about it sarah jessica and if we do bump into each other in real life i am not a stalker i'll be absolutely fine with you it's just it's just this movie i don't know it must be it must be the full moon or something <laughs> well it is definitely a full moon at the moment as we're recording this podcast which is perfect for the type of content we are discussing so you're not a secret sex and the city fan then <laughs> Well, I'm not even going to say a secret. I do really like Sex and the City. I like the series anyway. The movies, not so much. But I am, I am a pretty big fan of the series. So yeah, I'm not. I, I don't think I'm outing myself there. I think most people who know me know that I did watch Sex and the City when it was on TV, and I do have it on DVD. I've got to admit that. Learn something new every day. So going back to the IMDb rating, um, we have 6.9, which I think is really disappointing and criminal, and it should be a 10, in my opinion. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 39% tomato meter and a 72% audience score. I am pretty shocked, to be honest. I expected higher ratings for this movie because it's so beloved. I don't know a single person who doesn't like this film. Correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I'm aware, everybody loves this film. I mean, I'm currently walking around with a Hocus Pocus lounge fly bag and people compliment me on that bag. So everyone's obviously in the Halloween spirit and everyone's obviously looking forward to watching this film. And of course, it's regained new life once again because a sequel has just dropped on Disney Plus at the time of recording. There's lots to talk about there as well with Hocus Pocus 2, which we will get to in the next segment. Critics, you know, they're odd beings being a kind of critic myself we don't always go with the flow but for this one i think it's probably the sort of thing that critics looked at it and thought it's too silly it's not really aimed at anybody that's kind of looking for a deep halloween movie or any sort of proper scare and i think a lot of critics probably didn't hitch the wagon to this one because they thought if I'm seen to like this movie, it may knock my status as a serious critic. But fuck it. I mean, if you if you like Hocus Pocus, you like Hocus Pocus. I mean, you can like Schindler's List as well, but you can also like Hocus Pocus. There's no exclusivity between the two. Why don't you like both? But 
I think for some critics, it's not really... It's, it's almost like a badge of honour where they can piss on films like this. It's just like, oh, no, I've not got time for any of that stuff. And it's a shame because it's worth your time. Absolutely. The second of our Hocus Pocus double bill is, surprise, surprise, Hocus Pocus 2, the 2022 movie directed by Anne Fletcher. And as I said previously, this movie has literally just dropped on Disney Plus in time for the spooky season. So thank you very much, Disney Plus, for catering to all our witchy needs. So are we going to be ready to relight the Black Flame Candle? Yes, we are. So let's talk about Hocus Pocus 2, whether it's held up and whether we feel this movie needed even to be made. So the synopsis I'm going to read is the generic synopsis featured on IMDb, as I always do. Two young women accidentally bring back the Sanderson sisters to modern day Salem and must figure out how to stop the child hungry witches from wreaking havoc on the world. The world may have been free of Winifred, Mary and Sarah and the fear they invoked in us all. But what happens when you mess with magic? It messes back. It does mess back. A lot of people are going to say, was there any need for a sequel after all this time? And there are elements in this that do suggest that there might not have been a massive need for this sequel. What it does do is it opens up the backstory with a prologue from 1653 in Salem, where it takes the witches all the way back to childhood. and an arranged marriage that doesn't happen and the fairly evil character of a reverend who drives them out of their township and sets them on the path to become witches. So it's quite a nice prologue and it's done very well and it's quite spooky and humorous and you get the arrival of kind of the head witch of all of this, played by Hannah Waddingham, who is in Ted Lasso at the moment, which I haven't seen yet, but apparently is brilliant. So you get this kind of 12-minute mini-movie at the start where it's delving into their backstory, and that's really good. The problem I have is that when it gets into the present day, a lot of it seems to be a bit of a nostalgia trip and a bit of a retread of the first movie, and although I quite enjoyed it while I was watching it, there wasn't anything nearly as memorable in this second outing as the first one. And the only bits that really landed for me were the bits where they were harking back to the first movie. It does have more of a social conscience. It's got diverse casting, which is always a good thing. And it does try its hardest, but there's something lacking in the second one. And I'm going to have to use the pun here. It's lost a bit of the magic 
I'm very much in agreement with all of that. If I have to be honest, that's exactly how I felt when watching this. I think Disney knows that dropping a long-awaited sequel to one of their most memorable Halloween films on Disney Plus, everyone's in a position where, you know, if they're subscribed to Disney Plus, they can just watch it straight away. And I think that it's essentially made for content. They know people will stream it. Everyone's going to watch it. Even if you feel like, oh, there's no point to the sequel, you're going to be curious enough to check it out. So I think essentially it's a bit of a vanity project. But that said, I enjoyed elements of this. As you say, the backstory, I think Taylor Henderson, the young actress who plays young Winifred, fantastic. She got that character down to a T. And I think it was fun to see the younger versions of these characters. That was good. Another thing that was quite cool that I've seen a lot of memes about since the movie came out is that the witch mother is wearing uh, the exact same outfit that Danny wears in the first movie. I think what's lacking in it as well is we don't get to see the original characters in it other than the three witches and Billy Butcherson. We've got these new characters in it, but I think it might have been better if the new characters had to go to the old characters for help. That might have been an interesting way to frame it. Dora Birch was approached to star in this and she was really keen to but couldn't do it because of scheduling conflicts. But it would have been cool to see her back and see her as an older character. Obviously, we know Omri Katz isn't acting anymore, so it would probably be more difficult to get him back. I suppose they could have recast the role. I just think that we were just missing that from it, even though we had the witches back. We didn't have the uh, characters that also made Hocus Pocus what it was. And I think we just have these kind of one-dimensional generic main characters. And I just I just didn't gel with them as much. Obviously, I'm not the target audience anymore. This is very much, I would describe it as a classic Disney Channel-style movie, like Halloween Town and that that kind of thing. I just don't think it matches the cinematic quality that the first one did but it's fine it's it's a good movie it's enjoyable there's lots to like about it it wouldn't have mattered if it had been made or not i think that that's the bottom line yeah which is a shame i mean it's not terrible by any stretch of the imagination but it doesn't really go anywhere it's nice to see the three witches back together and they do have a couple of standout sequences. There's a bit where they go to a pharmacy, which is far and away the best bit of the movie because they're trying to deal with 21st century life and they think that the pharmacy is the same as the apothecary of their youth and it's nothing like, but they're drinking face cream and things like that. And it's all very, very funny. and. You get through that scene and you think, why isn't the rest of the movie like this? It's much more interesting when they're trying to cope with modern day life and falling short and being confused by various different things that are getting thrown at them. But it's just... There's there's a lot of missed potential in this movie and it's frustrating that it's just okay when it should have been brilliant and there are some weird anomalies as well because despite the fact that these witches are from 17th century Massachusetts one of them says cowabunga at one point and I'm thinking 
where has she picked Cowabunga up from? That just seems anomalous. And it's just little things like this. And I know that you can't tear a movie to shreds because of one line that's like Catherine Jamie has at one point in the movie. But there's loads and loads of weird things like that where you think they're talking in very old English speak at one point and then they're saying things, you know, they're saying things that are in normal modern vernacular and it's kind of, well, make your mind up. They're either talking as they were back in Salem or they've picked up all this modern slang. It's a weird mix of the two and it doesn't work a lot of the time. And it's annoying that it's just all right, this movie. It would have been almost better if it had been so terrible that I could have wiped it from existence completely. But the fact that it's not rubbish, but not anywhere near as good as it should have been, is just a source of immense frustration. I mean, at least they have things like Planet Claire by the B-52s playing in the background at one point. So there's lots to enjoy in this, especially for a B-52s fan like I am. And there's a nice joke about some jelly at the start because of this kind of potion thing where they're mixing all these things together, but they've actually made jelly. So there's invention in the script, but too often it falls back on really lazy tropes and people thinking, well, it's just going to coast on nostalgia. Oh, don't you remember when they did this in the first movie? Yes, I do, because I remember the first movie and I don't really want to see it again. Yeah, I don't know if I'm ever going to revisit this because why would I when I've got the original Hocus Pocus, which is a far superior film? Yeah, this movie is a little disappointing. I was rolling my eyes a bit at the whole retcon where the character who owns the magic shop was allegedly there and he witnessed the demise of the Sanderson sisters in the original movie and then he became obsessed with bringing them back and it took him 29 years. I think it's a bit like, oh, come on, this is just like a really elaborate plot line. I don't know, as I say, like it definitely had nostalgic feel to it. Not just with the whole seeing the three main witches back, but also just the, the tone of the movie and how it, again, it played on very generic 90s tropes in these movies, but obviously updated them. And again, as you say, it was fun seeing the witches try to navigate a modern world. As you say, that whole pharmacy scene is hilarious. When they come to doing their musical number, it's a bit like, yeah, this worked in the first movie because it was so unexpected and really fun and it just it just works really well and it's like oh they need another song for this or oh, what should we do so um spoiler alert they sing one way or another instead of i put a spell on you and it just does not have the same impact yeah it just it doesn't work for me as i say th- this film has some funny moments it's, it's it's light-hearted it is great to see them back you know it doesn't feel like they haven't done this for 29 years their three main actors are on point but yeah, as you say, this film is just lacking something. And yeah, I just don't really care for it. I wanted to love it, but I, I just, the more it went on, I just wasn't feeling it. And maybe it would have worked better as a prequel, but obviously we would have had the younger cast and I don't know if they would have held a whole movie. Maybe not. And I understand why they wanted to bring everybody back. But as you say, it just doesn't work out the way it should. I just left the whole thing feeling, well, not bereft, but I just thought, well, it wasn't a waste of an hour and a half, but it didn't really 
spark anything particularly passionate from me. It's a fairly lacklustre sequel, unfortunately. I've got to say it. Even though there's the odd moment that is inspired, there's too much that is fairly bland and forgettable. Even though I am going to pronounce enormous the way that Sarah Jessica Parker says it in the pharmacy, where she's looking around the apothecary and she says, it's enormous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at least Sarah Jessica Parker's in it for you, if nothing yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think this is one of those films as well that I feel has always been in the stratosphere to a point where it's always been mentioned like, oh, will it happen? It's been in like development for so long. And I think I almost didn't believe it was going to be natural movie until I saw the trailer for it. But it's one of those everybody has gone on about for years. And the thought of a sequel was quite exciting. But at the same time, because Hocus Pocus works as this singular family Halloween movie masterpiece, I just don't think there's anywhere else for the story to go. It wraps up like it should in the first movie. And what I didn't care for was how it went down a really corny sentimental route by the end. I won't spoil it for those who maybe haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure by the time this episode lands, I think most people will have uh, watched this film. The direction it took, and I was like, no, you're kind of taking away the wickedness of these witches for me. They're meant to be unapologetically evil and out for their own gain. And I think trying to humanise them a bit, I'm like, not really there for that, for like, trying to add layers and they, they do it with all the Disney movies now like I think it started with Maleficent like I was really disappointed because for to me Maleficent is one of the scariest most iconic Disney villains of all time I love Sleeping Beauty because it's so dark and I'm there for it because of Maleficent but in the live action film with Angelina Jolie I didn't like how they humanized her and they wrap on the whole story and you're just sitting there thinking like what is this achieving why are you doing this disney why oh i know why because they want money <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> there is there is this thing these days about looking at the villain side of the piece and saying well you know they're, they're kind of misunderstood cruella for instance cruella yeah. was the, the prime example of a recent one where they're saying well you know she is evil but let's let's explore the fact that she became evil because she wasn't normally that evil and and she's not as bad as the people around her i didn't mind cruella but part of me did think well just make a go full bore evil because as long as characters are interesting i don't care whether they're good or bad if i want to watch them in fact a lot of the time the bad guys are more interesting than good guys and in this particular instance giving the witches a shot at redemption just felt wrong they're there to be evil yes they're comedically evil but even so, they're still evil. And giving them this out at the end, where you get this syrupy, sentimental finish and some kind of shot at, well, not immortality for them, but the the whole fact of the matter is that they're back together at the end and they have this really, well, it's not drawn out, but it's kind of, you know where it's going and they just overreg it and you just think, oh, please, why didn't we have just a showdown between good and evil and then good triumphs, evil gets its ass kicked and then we can all get on with our lives. No, no, they had to bring this other dimension in. Well, they're not such bad guys, really. Yes, they are. They're supposed to be the bad guys and that's why we like them. But to 
give them this edge of, well, they're just misunderstood and it's a matter of circumstance. No, no, it's, we don't need that. Hans Gruber isn't a victim of circumstance. He's just an <laughs> evil bastard. And Hans Gruber is amazing. Go the diehard route. You know, we don't want him to have this road to Damascus conversion at the end of Die Hard, where it's like, oh, I've suddenly realised I've been a bad guy all this time. I'm going to try to be better. No, we want Hans Gruber shooting people indiscriminately and trying to kidnap people. Same with Hocus Pocus, the witches, they eat kids. So giving them this out at the end where it's like, well, they suck the souls out of children, but they're not that bad, really. Really? What universe? It's like, oh, well, we can just we can just wipe all of that off the slate. You know, they're not that bad. No, we want them to be bad. Yeah, exactly. That is why we love these witches. And I'm just like really tired of Disney doing this with every sequel or live action remake. I won't be surprised if Ursula survives The Little Mermaid when that comes out next year. <laughs> that will not surprise me that they redeem her or something and then she goes to live in the castle and everyone's happy ever after. I don't know, it's, it's just boring. Just keep evil evil in these movies. It's interesting to explore why they become evil, but I think it's really focused on the same trope. It's like, oh, as you say, they're misunderstood and They've been driven to this by someone twice as bad as them. It just doesn't, it doesn't wash with me. And I, I just didn't like that Hocus Pocus 2 went down that route. It was just so disappointing. And I just left it feeling like, why? What was the point of this? And then, of course, they have to show them in recording booths at the end in full costume singing. It's like, oh, is this like the end to Mamma Mia or something? <laughs> it's like so fan service and I'm all for a bit of fan service and a bit of nostalgia, but I just think the more I think about this, I'm just like, yeah, this was really trying too hard in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, it just seems to be assembled for a specific audience, which is going to coast on the nostalgia of the first one. And it has been the most streamed movie on Disney Plus already. So lots of people are watching it, as predicted. And I have no problem with that. But I'm wondering the percentage of people that watched it and thought, well, you know what? That was OK, but it didn't blow me away. And of course, they've got a post credit sequence, which hints that, yes, it's over for now, but there might be some more coming down the pipeline. So they could be franchising this movie. Get ready for a Hocus Pocus 3, perhaps. Who knows where they'll take it? I hope they take it in a different bloody direction if they do a third one, because I cannot sit through a third blueprint of the first movie. I'm sorry, like, I'll just go back and watch the first movie. I don't need to see the same movie made in a slightly different time with slightly different actors and a slightly different plot. No, if you're going to do a third movie, you want something radically different. It needs to go in a completely different direction. Otherwise... I will be switching off. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering what took them 29 years to try and franchise this movie. Couldn't they have struck when the iron was hot a few years ago? Because this film, since I've been alive, I've been aware of it. I thought this film has always been really popular. So I don't really understand why it's taken 29 years. Maybe budget, script, I don't know. Maybe the Aussie Disney have prioritised other projects. I guess I'm answering my own question here, <laughs> the more I ramble along. But yeah, it just seems like a very weird time to decide, oh yeah, let's, let's just like make more money out of this. 
the general consensus from what I've seen online and from people I've spoken to all have the same reaction about this film. Yeah, it's competently made, but it's just not anything special. Going back to the lead characters in the good guy camp, they're just so one-dimensional and basically the plot surrounds these three wannabe witches. One of them has kind of ditched the friend circle to date this douchebag of a guy who is just really annoying. Like, I can't even see why she'd rather spend time with this idiotic jock. He's not even, like, mean or anything like that. He's not a mean-spirited character. He's just really annoying and a bit dumb. And I just don't really understand the appeal and why she's not hanging out with her friends with this guy. It just goes down that really tropey plot. And then something happens obviously and like brings them back together it's it's just plots we've seen all before and they don't really make anything interesting out of the characters the main girl is very serious throughout there's not an element of fun to her i just don't think the dynamic works as well compared to the first movie as i said thora birch for me carried that film just because she was hilarious and played the annoying little sister character really well but in this there's none of that it's just really kind of paint by numbers they make the characterization of the the main characters take a back seat just so they can have more of the main witches in it i think that's probably what they were doing it just feels very put together in a lazy way where they've just rushed it because they just know everyone's gonna watch it it's halloween season i absolutely love disney it is like one of my favorite things in life next to horror (laughs) But I know deep down Disney is manipulative (laughs) and just complete consumerism. And I know all that. And I still love it. And I still watch anything they churn out. (laughs) But sometimes you've got to think, yeah, just this just wasn't worthy of my time. It wasn't. It's trying so hard not to offend as well. It's just ticking all the boxes. And I don't mind that it's trying to showcase a different view on society but they could have done so much more with it the female characters are not as strong as they could be the relationship between them isn't particularly well written the jock character even though he is an idiot he's given an out at the end as well so he's not really offensive and they give this really weak excuse for his offensive behavior at the end, just, uh, well, I mean, I'm going to spoil it because they just say, well, basically, he doesn't realise he's being offensive because he's stupid. That's the plot of his character arc. Yeah, it's offensive by saying, oh, this guy is so thick he doesn't realise he's offending everybody. But even then, you just think, it's just lazy. And I can't forgive it, it's laziness, because this could have gone anywhere. They could have used the plot to take this story in any direction that they wanted it to and then they've settled on this and quite frankly it's not good enough it's nice to see the three lead actresses again and they're as good as ever but they can't really rescue the rest of this movie because it just falls flat i mean i think it looks like they had a lot of fun returning to these roles and given the opportunity to play all that again and reunite like i think they look like they had a blast but it's not enough to carry a full film on it if they made like a short or maybe like a, a stage version or something that was put on Disney Plus, that might have been quite cool. But again, there's just no need for it. There was actually a novelization sequel written 
prior to this movie coming out that I think did feature the main characters from the first one. And I, I would be quite intrigued to read that just to see if it was better. But interestingly, if there was already a novelization of a, a sequel to the 1993 movie, why didn't they try and transform that into a film? I don't, I don't know. It's got to be reasons for it. I just think they just wanted to slapdash and put this out now because they knew people were eager for it. They were as hungry for it as the witches are hungry for children's souls. <laughs> but And Disney just, just threw it on there. And there's so much coming out of Disney. They recently had their D23 Expo and we're getting a Enchanted sequel. We're getting a prequel to The Lion King. We're getting the new Little Mermaid film. It's just basically capitalising on its existing content because it knows people are just going to go and watch these things regardless. Yeah, I'm going to say this now to Disney. This is the warning. You had better not fuck Enchanted up. <laughs> you heard it here first. I'm quite intrigued to see that film, just on a quick side note, because I know they're going to be subverting elements of the plot and things. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm quite intrigued to see where that goes. But yeah, hopefully, again, because it's one of those movies that did well at the time and is really popular, and they've taken ages to make a sequel. So, as you say, you know, you're bringing back the core cast again, it's got to be good. Whereas in the case of Focus Pocus 2, everything is there to make it a great movie. How did they screw it up? Well, flat writing and no no drive to make it anything other than a carbon copy of the original, which leads me to the central question we've been asking. Why make a sequel? On this evidence, why indeed? Money. That's all it is. Yeah. And my other criticism of it is not enough black cats. Yeah, black true. cat does not get enough screen time. Now I know it's not Binks because at least they didn't try and resurrect Binks because that would have been ridiculous. But they do have a black cat in it called Cobweb who lives in the magic shop and Cobweb is so cute. And interestingly enough, there is a post credit scene with Cobweb. And during that scene, my black cat Luna jumped on me because she saw representation of herself on screen just saying cats know they're smarter than we think (laughs) yeah they do i know that it's fairly early days in hocus pocus 2's history but do we have imdb scores for it we do weirdly enough it's got 6.2 which is dangerously close to what they've given the original which i do not agree with in the slightest Rotten Tomatoes, 63% tomato meter. This film has a higher tomato meter than the original, which is insane to me. And a 54% audience score, which I'd agree with because, you know, this is a well-made film. There's elements in place that do work quite well. But on the whole, as you say, it's kind of flat and leaves you feeling like you're wanting something more out of it. So, yeah, I'd say this is a very much average movie for a straight to Disney Plus film. It's competent. It's exactly what I'd have expected from the traditional Disney Channel style film back in the 90s and early 2000s. That's all it is. It's just basically the equivalent of you get a Disney masterpiece on theatrical release and then they capitalise on it with a really rubbish straight to video sequel. And that's kind of what's going on here. As I say, it's not really rubbish, but it's just... It's not the original, and it just didn't need to come. They don't need to franchise this. This should Hocus Pocus should always have been a standalone because it just completes itself. It's an arc as a film, as a story, and there's just nowhere really left to go. 
I, it's just disappointing. It's just really, really disappointing. And I don't want to sit here and have to say this, but it was like somebody had kind of taken the wind out of me at the end of this. I was really up for it, especially after seeing the first one at the end. I just thought, is that it? Is that is that all they're going to give us? And of course, one way or another, I mean, if you're going to come for somebody's song, don't don't go for Debbie Harry because you're on a loser to start with. And also, one way or another is about a stalker. Now, I know they've changed the lyrics in this, but somebody should have looked into the history of that song because as soon as it came on, I was thinking, well, yeah, it kind of fits what's going on in the in the movie at the time but but the actual genesis of the song was somebody who was stalking Debbie Harry so it's a poppy song based in some real darkness at least they changed enough of the lyrics to make it slightly more palatable to the Hocus Pocus 2 audience but yeah go figure I mean it's I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's it's not especially worth your time if you've seen the first one or not watch the first one you don't need to see the second one. It's just a needless sequel in a sea of needless sequels. So just watch the original twice. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely do that. I can, I can multiply watch Hocus Pocus. Halloween begins for me when I watch that film. It's like one of the first films I watch during this season. But yeah, Hocus Pocus 2 essentially was just a cash cow. It was just there to produce content because it knows it's the equivalent of bums on seats in the cinema. We're not really in the cinema as much as we used to be anymore. So they're just going to target you straight at home, go and stream that. Yeah, it's, it's just what Disney is all about at the moment. I think it is just all about the money and it's not really caring about the fans. It's hard to say. Yep. So not great. And to use the term the witches say at one point, alas... <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 81 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to check out our other content, we are on social media Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. We continue on with our descent into the witchy world in the next episode. And it's quite a departure from anything that we've done so far. It's 2016's arty horror, The Love Witch, directed by Anna Billa. This is going to be a first time viewing for me. I have tried to make a point of watching this film since 2016 and so far have failed. So now no more excuses. I'm going to watch The Love Witch and we're going to talk about it on this podcast in the next episode. So that's something to look forward to. I first saw The Love Witch at Abattoir, and I'm interested to see what you think of it, Haley. It's a very individual movie. I'm not going to say what I think of it at the moment. You'll have to wait until next episode to find out whether I love or hate it. So, until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Haley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.